0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and this episode is with Eddie. Perfect, who you might know as Tony Award nominee for Best Original Score for Beetlejuice, the musical. He's got a new album out called Beetlejuice, The Demos, The Demos, The Demos. It's, it's an album that is all of his concept demos for the songs that eventually made their way into the show and became what we know on the soundtrack. It's him singing some of the original things. It's 24 tracks total on the whole album, including 14 songs that were cut. They never made it into the final version. They never even, some of them never even got developed. So you're hearing some of these songs that, that normally would never ever have been heard. So I think it's really cool that he's putting this out. It's a time when people need to hear this and they need to feel the art, especially when Broadway shut down at the moment. So this new album, there's a link in the show notes for you to get it. Please check it out. It's so good. We also get into some pretty honest truths about how the creative team handled some not-so-positive reviews from the DC out-of-town tryout for Beetlejuice. And then he tells some stories that he admits he probably never has told before about what it was like to work on both King Kong, which he he did vocal arrangements for. King Kong and Beetlejuice, both in the same season. Of course, no one really plans these things timing-wise, but how hard that was and just how much, at the end of the day, he truly, truly just enjoys what he does, even though it's kind of exhausting. But the whole album, the whole story, his whole thing, he just peels back the curtain on what it's like to be this intense creative and shows us a little bit you know, into the process of how a big Broadway show is, is made. So I really enjoyed this. I hope you do too. Before we get into the episode, as always find me online at Twitter at theater underscore podcast on Instagram at theater underscore podcast on Facebook at official theater podcast or online at the And now everybody, please enjoy this episode with Eddie. Perfect. three My guest today comes to us live from Australia. He's an extremely accomplished actor, singer, songwriter, comedian, and now is able to add Tony Award nominee to his resume after being nominated for Best Original Score for Beetlejuice the Musical. And he has also written songs and vocal arrangements for King Kong. He's also a four-time nominee and two-time Helpman Award winner, which is the Australian equivalent of the Tony Awards, and he's set to star in the Australian premiere of Dolly Parton's musical 9 to 5, Once COVID Restrictions Are Lifted. And now here to chat with us today about his fifth album, Beetlejuice, the demos, the demos, the demos. Eddie Perfect, welcome to the theatre podcast.
1: Oh, thank you. It was lovely to be on the theatre podcast. Are you in New York? I am, Brooklyn, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's nice to have a little window into Brooklyn. The stars stars are out
0: cold and rainy and dark here yeah it's uh, it's good um i i butchered that alex brightman beetlejuice impression but you know the fans won't forgive me i know they're they're brutal the fandom for beetlejuice yeah. i actually had no idea to start i had no plans to start with this but the fandom for beetlejuice is insane like isn't it have you experienced this before
1: with king no. kong or your
0: other stuff down in
1: australia no no never with anything um and you know I and I to be you know I don't want to people think I'm disingenuous but we honestly did not know that anyone would ever get into Beetlejuice we did it um we thought we thought we had something like altish in Washington DC when we started that show was like an extreme version of what made it to Broadway it basically just kind of came out and metaphysically punched the audience in the face and half <laughs> the audience were like yeah and the other half were like, Fuck this. And so we kind of started to build during previews this really kind of culty fan base who like come show after show and they really quickly learnt lyrics and lines from the show. And that that kind of thing had never happened. And I was like, Well, this is exciting. So we were getting our hopes up. Then we got the, like, the world's worst review in the in the Washington Post. And it was like and then um and then that sort of all went away. And so we thought that it was going to be like, you know. People, the kind of, the, I guess, the kind of, um, uh, you know, the 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 press critique was that it was like super undergraduate, below the belt, nasty. I think it was called a coke snorting, f bombing disaster. Was one <laughs> of, <them>. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, we always knew that, yeah, it had all that stuff in there. But you know, in our heads, we we're like, yeah, but it's anchored to a, you know, a story about, uh, you know, a, a story that meant a lot to us about what happens. Um, when you're not allowed to talk about death and you're not allowed to discuss grief and loss, what happens to relationships and what happens to people and then how do you heal those relationships? But it was so crazy in DC. We were like, I don't think this message is getting through. So when we um, when we kind of had that three-month period to rewrite for, for for Broadway, it was all about like story. How do we make sure the story is front and centre and that all of the craziness is not overpowering it. And so I think, you know, we were really fortunate to have that experience in DC, even though it was like bruising um, and kind of humiliating, because um, it made us kind of reassess the show and how we were saying it, whether people were hearing what we were saying. Um, so by the time it got to um, Broadway, I mean, you don't know. You're just doing it in a, in a rehearsal room and, you know, you, make, you and the actors are just making each other laugh. And then we went into tech and then in um and then before we did our first preview, we had this um this friends and family show that was just like the like the worst like it, we just wanted to take ourselves out onto Broadway and shoot ourselves in front of a food cart. It was like it was i don't know what happened, but like I don't know whether the audience were like on on death's door or like every, everyone's got really terrible friends and family. <laughs> nobody laughed. <laughs> Nobody laughed at all. It was almost like, oh, no. We were like, oh, shit, we are in trouble here. And so the first preview was quite the high-stakes moment on Broadway. I was terrified because of how badly the the day before had gone. And then when I turned up to the theatre after dinner, there was this, you know, like um, Beetlejuice, the Winter Garden Theatre is right next to Alan Stardust diner. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, like, I was always like, well, it's going to be really embarrassing if Alan Stardust Diner has a, a diner has a longer lineup than Beetlejuice does every night." Like, it's probably a very real possibility. <laughs> and I was like, turned up, and I was like, "Jesus!" A lot of people want to get into Alan Stardust Diner tonight, and um, but it was like super weird. It's like our audience uh, had kind of was was queued lined up outside the box office of Winter garden, snaking all the way around the block, and had kind of joined up and overtaken their line. And everyone was dressed up in like cosplay. And my wife and I were like losing our minds. I was like, wow. Oh, well, I've got to get a I've got to get video footage of this line. It's just crazy. And then sort of from the first preview, we we knew it was something that had that had struck a chord with people. I mean Broadway shows sort of favor those stories about the outsider, you know, the Outcast, the person that sort of misunderstood and maligned—that really does resonate with music theatre audiences, I think. But you know, there's something about the um, the balance between you know a very dark, you know, and possibly morbid subject matter, but it giving people permission to to laugh at it and and having enough heart in it that just created this incredible like response from fans in their own creativity. That's the thing that's really blown my mind! Is that it, it? That when you make something creative, and people have a creative response to it. So the inside of the Winter Garden was inside, completely covered in fan art. Amazing fan art, imaginative, kooky, like disturbing, brilliant fan art. People making animatics on YouTube to the soundtrack. You know, people doing covers of the songs. Um, you know, it was a whole book of artwork that got made of mm-hmm. um, and released for charity and. Um, fans made an entire online musical version of the whole show. Um, I've never experienced anything like that. And we were so, you know, we're so kind of grateful for it. It's it's bizarre. It's like it was, and it very nearly didn't happen because it wasn't a universally critically loved show at all. It got very mixed reviews on Broadway, a lot of like kind of negative reviews. Um, but, you know, I guess you kind of, you can't, Set out to be a cult show. You know what I mean? You, it's sort of like you sort of have to get the shit kicked out of you in order to be a, a cult show. And one of the things we did to make ourselves feel better about the Washington DC reviews was to read the reviews of the original Tim Burton nineteen eighty eight film, and that they were like that was a weird thing to do because Anthony King, the book writer, is like just shared a bunch of reviews from places like the New York Times. They were so similar to the reviews we got. Undergraduate, really? childish, you know, um, lacking any substance, all that sort of stuff. Um, and you forget, I mean, fucking critics. Jesus, what do they? Know? What do they know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the interesting thing? As
0: I realized, you know, I read the release, the press release about uh, this album that you just put out. The it's all it's called the demo. Beetlejuice, the demos, the demos, the demos. Um, and I was going to ask sort of why, you know, what, what the impetus was behind this, why you wanted to do it. But it seems now, after hearing what you just said, very obvious to me that it's, it's just giving the people more of what they want. And especially in a time right now when Broadway shut down and theater, like Australia theater shut down and West End was supposed to come back and now it's shutting down again.
1: Yeah. People, I think- people need this. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I, you know, like there is a um, a reason why people don't release their demos because they're, you know, they're shit ass. They're like, you know, it's me, it's on my laptop here. I don't have much gear. I'm not a studio audio tech guy. I've never tried to be because it takes time away from writing. But, um, you know, for me, it's like I'm, I, really, uh, I really like visual art and I very much enjoy, um, you know, Art of sketches and and sketchbooks and you know the the planning and the plotting on the way to doing things. Sometimes there's really nice observations, or it's just like you know it's unfinished, but it's um it's got a real beauty about it that you can't hang on a wall, but you but you really in, enjoy it as like either as process or as some like kind of um. There's less pressure on it, and there's a kind of a weird. Um, trance that i go into when i make stuff where i really i think about what it's like what it would be like to be in the audience watching it because i think it's really important to um you know to start at that place of what do i want the audience to think and feel and and learn in this moment you know about the characters or about what's happening in the story and then you, then you just kind of forget about the reality that anyone's going to hear it. And then there's this moment where I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready to email this to my collaborators. And that's like the book writers, Scott Brown and Anthony King and and the director, Alex Timbers. And just when you go to hit scene, there's always this moment where you're like, holy shit, I'm a grown-ass man, like making weird noises in a little room by myself. and I And I hadn't really thought about the fact that other – Adults are going to have to hear this, and it's really <laughs> vulnerable. It's really like, you know, like, and I'm like, oh, this is really weird. And so, you but know, it's dirty. It's,
0: talking, talking about, you know, what was the original version that was changed from DC into Broadway and stuff. Like, the, I was listening to this right, and it's it's so much filthier and it's so dirty. And there, I think if I counted correctly, there's 14 songs. There's 24 songs total on the album, 14 of which. Are said they were cut from from the final show, from the Broadway show.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it was always my dream to write on Broadway, but I never thought it would kind of happen. And when I started going to New York and I just sort of get nowhere, and I heard that Beetlejuice was going around, they didn't have a composer and lyricist. I asked to pitch on it and they didn't want me to pitch on it because they were like, who's this? Who the fuck is this guy? Is weird Australian guy. But um I managed to convince my agent to just ask them if I could do, write two songs for them for free. And they were like, oh, okay. So they sent me the script, which was hilarious, very different to what it became, um, but hilarious. And um, I was like, this is, you know, this is it. This is like, the sh- this is my shot, you know, this is my shot to, uh, you know, I actually didn't think I would get it, but I thought at the very least it would show my agent that, you know, I can write American stuff and that um, maybe Alex Timbers would hear something in it, and if I'm not right for this, maybe, you know, it might be something down the line. But I, you know, like I I really went hard at it, and then when I got the job, I mean, that's the thing, you know, it's, they don't give you the mountaintop, they just sort of go, give you a chance to walk up the mountain, and it's your job to <laughs> make it good. And I really went hard at the, these songs, and I was like, well, what is it? You know, maybe this could happen, and maybe this could happen Some. Were songs written for scenes that ended up getting cut, but someone like oh, I just like you know, hey guys, what about this moment? If you know, we had like a swing duet between Beetlejuice and Lydia, and so I was in full like um, pleasing <laughs> mode. I was like, <laughs> these guys, guys, you know, like prove you know, constant proving yourself, which is sort of a na- the nature of the 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 industry anyway. But I really wanted you know it to work, and I really wanted the, the guys to like my. Writing And I really wanted to keep moving things forward. So I was like writing like a crazy man. I, you know, it was sort of unsustainable. I mean, there are even more songs that are in less finished state that didn't make it to the demo that were, that were cut. I mean, so many, so many weird ideas, but you know, it is dirtier because you kind of got to go for the big idea. It's easier to tone that back than to put something tame out and then try and, you know, make it more edgy.
0: Absolutely, and and the whole "Being Dead" thing—I think that's the song that was credited as what Alex Timbers heard that that offered you the job. And I was listening to the to the original version in there, and that and some other songs have these kind of these references to other existing shows. There was like a whole like syncopated section in the middle of the whole "Being Dead" thing on your demo. That's a complete throw to Hamilton.
1: The good news is you and your spouse died in your own house. That gives you clout. That means there's something you can do about the yuppies from uptown who swooped down and bought it. Don't be darned. It's your house. So on it, I'll teach you to flaunt it. I'm the ghost with the mosters. Scare the living shit out of folks coast to coast. It's lucky for you. I dropped by you. Yeah, you seem like nice guys a little on the pottery barn and dry white wine side.
0: Yeah, it was it was amazing. And there was. Um what, oh, what was the I think Death's Not Great Yeah, Death's Not Great It was the original opening song That was cut And yeah. I've listened to that thing on repeat Since I've heard it Because it it's like It's very sort of lay Miz Marchy It's like, you know It's a military beat sort of thing yeah. It doesn't fit Beetlejuice I know why it was cut But it's a great song
1: Death's not great There's a dread that can feel you For Christ's sake mosquito can kill you, there's so much to hate It's a waste of breath, but death's not great And it's just round the corner Pounces on you like an improv performer And wham, it's too late You're stuffed in a crate it was a sort of comedy that was hard to start a show with too. It's the like, you know, we're, we're uber serious and we're doing, you know, as you say, like a big lamey's opening, just talking about how, you know, it's, it's not, it's not great, is it? <laughs> 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 it's, it's pretty shit. Um, so that was kind of like hard to pull off in the room. You know, it's more like something you would do with like an orchestra and a choir or something. It's kind of super weird, but yeah, but it was like, you know, a lot of it is like, you know, what about this? Is this something? You know, is this idea something? And you know, um, there was so much stuff. And you know, we we you know the producers really enjoyed the demos. I mean, the demos kind of became, you know we, we've got to remember we've been sitting these things for five years. So like you know, pulling out demos and them, That was sort of the way I I write because I, because of the physical distance. You know, me being in Melbourne and also. I like to kind of like have a kind of a sketch of what I think it might sound like and and being a performer too, it's really fun to get inside and act the songs and just try and make them work as much as I can with the limitations that I've got. So they ended up being kind of like fun little, um, fun little sketches, I guess, of where my head was at. And I just was like uh, really up and down. Do I want to put this out into the world? Because once they're out there, they're kind of out there forever and like, like they're not, you know, I'm, I don't know how to mix anything. The super loud, distorted bits. I mean, we got, um, Oscar <laughs> Zambrano, who's an amazing audio master, just to kind of make the volume level of everything the same. But other than that, you know, there was a time where I was like, maybe I should get in and remix them. But I was like, I, I can't be bothered doing, it. <laughs> I can't be bothered doing that. I either just be honest and put it out there or I don't. And then, you know, when everything shut down for the pandemic, it's like, well, you know, who ca- who cares? You know what I mean? Like, who cares? Just put them out there. And I mean, I'm not like, you know, I'm not pretending it's this kind of studio album. It's very much a kind of a crate digging curiosity for people um, you know, who might want to hear what the first version of stuff is. You know, I've heard a few demo things from Broadway composers, but not a lot. And it's one of those things where you're like, you don't know what other people's demos sound like. Like, you know, what are the you know, what are the demos to um hairspray sound like for example and I asked our producer that because he you know Mark Goffman he produced hairspray Mm -hmm. and so he you know he played me one of the original demos and I was like holy shit this is a amazing he even played me other pitch songs for Beetlejuice from Compose and that was amazing because you're like wow that is so different and nobody gets to hear these things and i think that's a little bit of a it's a, it's a little bit of a shame you know because everything's like oh you know you're making an album you know where is it on the charts and how much money i mean like this didn't cost anyone any money you know we just got some art we did some artwork we put it online that's we got mastered that's it and so um yeah it's just out there and it can just do be what it is a little kind of companion piece to the show for anyone who's interested
0: I I love it, and I, I feel like it it opens up kind of the doors for people to start going beyond uh, what's already out there in terms of of making additional staging and and choreography and all of if you can make a version that adds some of these cut songs back or adds some you know people can write fan art or the equivalent of fan art fan scenes is that a thing people write their their stories to fit in these songs that were cut I, I can guarantee you this is going to happen knowing the
1: Beetlejuice fandom. Yeah, it's interesting. It sort of already happened and it, and it, and it, and it sort of broadens the the universe of, of Beetlejuice a little bit for those fans who do really riff off the, the work and, like, they want to know, you know, who the characters are and where they've come from and, and they want to know more stuff about it, which is just natural when you really lo- you love a world you know you want to be inside it and you want to three-dimensionally kind of push at all the corners of it and that's what like fan fiction is you know it's like how do I expand this world and put these characters in new situations and I mean that's that's like a creative response and um I think that's I think that's super cool you know super cool um that's what I did when I was writing it but you you eventually as you go along you start having to put you know boundaries you have to put a fence around the craziness and so all of these, you know, could have been and, you know, should have been or, like, might have been like live out on the fringes and it's like, no, let's, you know, let's share it. I mean, so many people, are the, the fans of the show are so courageous in putting some of the stuff they put up and you can tell in their in their posts that they're nervous about, like, oh, I've never done anything like this before but I just wanted to sing Home from, from Beetlejuice or, you know, like, the really, like, risk-taking stuff. I'm like, well if they can do it then I can do it. What's what's going to happen?
0: Well, it's it's fun to think about now that you kind of put that in perspective. Uh, I mean, fans doing it is one thing, but as, you know, a professional, right? You, you want to hopefully get more jobs out of this. And you've got King Kong and you've got Beetlejuice and then hopefully when when corona is over, we you know, if this vaccine sticks, fingers crossed, um Broadway comes back, you do more shows and was it a concern, or is it a concern if you're saying, "Well, if I pull back the curtain, they're gonna, they're gonna know how I work"? And you know, speaking personally, a lot of what I do when I do this sort of thing of of sort of revealing behind the scenes is saying, like, "Well, are they gonna think I'm an imposter now?" It's dealing with the imposter syndrome aspect of all of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't know how other people work. You don't, you know. I mean, I think other people are probably a little more. I don't know if "calculated" is the right word. You know, like guarded and and protective of stuff, and I think that's really good. Um, but you know, I, I um, you know, he, here in Australia, we don't have a strong tradition of making our own musical theatre. So we um, are very good at putting it on. We've got and you know, we've got all the things that you need to make great musicals, except we don't have a system, an ecosystem of um, of training. Um, sort of talent development, creative development and then presentation and then a commercial outcome that justifies that massive expense like Broadway does. So in Australia, we're, we're very much an importer of Broadway shows um, and our teams and actors and musicians do extraordinary job of that. But I find myself, you know, always kind of like um, trying to talk to young writers or emerging writers and um, – and you know the, the, what I've done, going to New York and writing in New York, is, is a big deal for anyone in Australia who um, who wants to progress as a as a music theatre composer because it's a, it's kind of like a, it's possible, you know. And I find myself talking about process. You know how do you how do you write stuff? How do you pitch songs? Who, who are you pitching songs to? And when you do, what do you give them? And you know, it's all very esoteric, but it all boils down to people sending you. A demo of their stuff and listening to it and giving them feedback, and then you know I talk about how I work. So part of me is also like, um, there's this you know when you emerge with a new show and everyone goes and sees the show, it looks like it just sort of instantly happened that way, but it's very much a kind of a building. You know, you 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 know you you we wrote the opening number over five years. You know, I wrote a whole other song, and then we're like, what if we just took that hook from that song that was like a welcome to a show about death, and we just sort of stuck it. It was kind of like gluing things in, and we'd look at it and we'd be like, oh, that doesn't really work. And then we'd cut that out and try it. You know, it's, um, you know, that's our job. That's our full time job that we're doing. And it's like, <laughs> you know, years and years and hours. And sometimes we like, How do you learn all those lines? Or like, How do you learn? You know, it's like, That's what people do. That's all they do. I mean, you, you'd hope people learn their lines because they've got, <laughs> they got nothing else to do. You know what I mean? It's like, that's That's how it happens. And so I think for writers, you know, young writers especially, it's good to go things don't come out fully formed. They really don't. And um, things can kind of, you know, connections can get made in in weird ways. And um, I think every now and then it's good to share that process and I think it helps um, young writers. And, you know, when Beetlejuice came along, it just coincided with a very creative time in my life where I just was like, like I just had, i mean I, I think i still do i'm writing other stuff i just think i've hit a period in my life like i'm 42 now but i kind of got the gig when i was like 39 And they say that about people in their 40s that, you know you like that's when things start cooking and i really feel that you know i'm not worried really about what people think about me i've sort of kind of know who i am i got a family i don't sort of need too much validation i kind of got a process now that I understand um I'm confident enough in it that I don't waste any energy worrying about oh will I ever have another idea or you know um I mean you always have that am I good enough thing but you know you just live with that but other than that it's like I know (laughs) if I sit down and I write something's going to come out you know that's I've been doing it enough now that I like I know that's going to happen and so I don't fret about it. I just I just do it now, and you know, my, my I've got you know, as I said, I got a family and kids, and your world does start to kind of like shrink down, and then work becomes very important. Me and me and my little this space, my little shed. I spend a lot of time in here on my own, and I've learnt to really um, you know enjoy that time. As it's, it's like it's pure creativity, um, and so. Yeah, so I'm really happy to, I'm kind of happy to share that, even though it's got, like, occasions of, you know, terrible musicianship and appalling singing <laughs> and, like, you know, who gives a shit, you know? Who do, who shit? do
0: you take it, I mean, is it a personal thing to to get something cut or if you send something over and you're like, oh, I hope it's good enough, and then Alex Timbers comes back and it was like, well, that was really not anything like what we were looking for.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is tough when you really believe in it or you're really excited by it. Because, um, but there is a little bit of like when it's just you, it's really hard to know. Like, is is this anything? And so, when you send it off to collaborators, you sort of you sort of are looking for. Sometimes there's like songs where you're like, I don't know about this one, but I'm going to send it anyway. And Alex Timbers has almost this savant ability to write like a three sentence email back that nails exactly everything that you instinctively knew was wrong with the song, but you had lied to yourself enough to not see. <laughs> I was like, damn, yes, you're right. All right, yes, all right. I'll cut it. I'll cut it. So um, that was a really good relationship. And it continues to be a really good relationship because he's so insightful. But he also, you know, he's a he's a New York Broadway creative. He has an am- amazing... There's an amazing kind of like just symphony of very nice language for telling people something shit. You know, I mean, it's very, <laughs> it's like, there is a lot of, you know, you learn the language, you know, you do, you learn how to, you know, talk about ideas in a way that doesn't hurt people's feelings. And you also get a little bit more, you little get a little bit more robust, you know. Too much politeness sucks because it's the time waster when someone just really hates something. And it's like, I don't think this works, but great. Um, but yeah, other than that, you know, um, it is a delightful, it is a delightful back and forth. Sometimes when some you go, ah, oh, this is, I'm absolutely excited about this, and someone's like, I don't, I'm not into it at all. That's kind of complicated because you're like, oh, you know, if people don't share your excitement, then it's really hard to move it forward. Or if people fall out of love and with something in the process and want to cut it, you know, I have this thing where like. Um, if something's going to die, I want it to die in public. I don't want it to die in a corner alone you know, in an <laughs> institution. So I'm like, can we put it into the workshop and can we all look at it and can we all see it? And because, you know, there's a magic that happens when an actor does it in a development. Um, sometimes, you know, it gets a huge laugh and everyone's like, oh, maybe, maybe we will keep this song around. You know what I mean? And then it's like, Jesus, lucky we didn't cut that in your bloody hotel room last night, you know? So it's, it's how, complicated.
0: How much of, of the the creative process revolves around the interaction with the cast? Because the cast typically comes like at the end of the process. So if you're already writing and iterating for years and then the cast comes in, does that just blow things up or is it just kind of like putting icing on the foundation of this cake that's already been baking?
1: Well, it's really interesting because you... You know, and I think it's, um, and well, I'm biased, but I think it's most interesting with comedy. Uh, Comedy is just the most extraordinary art form because, um, you know, you're not only um, are you dealing with the usual storytelling things of you know making sense and having characters and having motivations and having wants and needs and obstacles and all those things that exist in drama, but you have this heightened level of storytelling where it's like, how much does this? You know, how how does comedy function for this character? You know, do they know they're funny? Um, And we kind of, it took a really long time to, very instinctively, Scott, um, Anthony, and I shared a a similar sense of humour. Like, what makes these people funny? Or what makes them, like, you know, redeemable? And it took a little while to find that with Beetlejuice. I and mean, we were like, Beetlejuice is most redeemable when he's really needy, you know? Like he can be gross and crass. But um, if he's like super objective is he wants people, he wants connection, he wants, you know, a friend, he wants to be friends, but he doesn't know how to go about doing it. Then, you know, you you can kind of forgive his grossness because he's like, you know, you go, okay, I can see what he wants. He's just going about getting it the wrong way. But with the comedy of the show, it's so much fun Um, because once it got into the actors' mouths, we started to learn a lot about it. Like a lot of the comedy is like um, um, uh, the characters are are completely unaware of of how they're being perceived or how um, completely unaware of their damage or of their contradictions or their hypocrisies. So, like, take Delia for example, and once you give that to someone like comic genius like Leslie Kritzer, you know, um, you know, she, it's just like it's just out there with this kind of beautiful, you know, unjudged purity. She's never trying to like, you know, sell a line. It's just like, and, and you and you, lo- you know, you are laughing at her and you are loving her because um, she just cannot see the truth of <laughs> her life, you know. Um, so that is a really, that once the cast came on board and I did come on board fairly early, like, um, we did two sort of like writer workshops where we wrote the first act and then we just sort of sat around the room, just the writers doing it. And then we did the second act and then we did our first 29 hour read where we got a cast involved. And that was, you know, stressful, but amazing. And, and once you start kind of having the same actors come back for each development when you're like, yes, this is the right for this role and with Beetlejuice it was so specific that if someone wasn't available and you had someone else in there it was re- it was really hard to roll with it but um, you do start to lean into that person's comedy you know now, Alex Brightman is so funny in the room and and like no matter how gross or weird the stuff you threw at him was he just didn't flinch it was just like you know and we were, it was such a joyous place to be in that room you know um, Carrie Butler is like you know, sweet as pie and total Disney as as Barbara Maitland, but then and then found this kind of like real grit that was hilarious. Rob McClure as Adam Maitland is just like the most divine, lovely guy. and just because the just plays this incredible sort of clueless button down, you know, earnest idiot. It was just, it was really <laughs> joyous. It was really, really joyous. So we had an amazing, amazing time once the actors came on board. And yeah, like you can, you know, you really got a feel for like how it was going to feel and and sound and that that was also like a really long process as well. Yeah, I
0: I have been on the casting side of things every now and then and yeah, being on some of the creative stuff now, it's it just takes... Forever. And I've always been really impressed with how quickly Frozen came to Broadway. Cause it was two years after the movie came out. And all right. of a sudden we've got this Broadway show. And to have a Broadway show put together in two years, I I had of that magnitude I had never heard of before. So yeah, that to hear you know, these stories.
1: Jesus. Wow.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was insane. But I want to actually ask you about the whole being in Australia moving to Broadway doing that that career move cuz King Kong and Beetlejuice come out in the same season and all of a sudden this guy Eddie Perfect that had never written for Broadway before is just here with two shows at the same time. Yeah. So which came first? How did you get that? And then I guess obviously you were working both at the same time, yeah?
1: Yeah. So um oh yeah, people really love that in New York. <laughs> um I Working on Beetlejuice for um, two years before the idea of King Kong came along. And King Kong had um, happened in Australia. It happened in Melbourne at the, at the Regent Theatre. And I had nothing to do with that original version, but I did see it. And it was this very kind of like amazing, um, it was very, it's kind of like almost like alienating, like an like a arts festival type show. It was really long, had sort of big, Old ideas, quite expressionistic, and um, people were very confused by it. It was loud, it was like disjointed, it had lots of like, you know, angular laser lighting and, um, you know, super stylized choreography and then weird costuming. It was like this kind of weird electro punk kind of ballet slash puppet show. And people were like, What the fuck is this? (laughs) And I loved it. I loved it. (laughs) I found it like weird and great. I mean, it was like a little, you know, uh, you know. Obviously, it had its issues, but I really, I was like, shit. I have never seen anything like that before in my life. That is like crazy. And you know, I'm I like risk taking, and I like people that take risks, and I and I and I like the to be up. I go and see something, and like. It really annoys me when people's first reaction is, oh, well, you know, the the book was a little weak or, you know, the score was disjointed. Or I'm like, there was a fucking giant gorilla running down the middle of the state. What is wrong with you? Like, it's crazy. And so um, I've been writing Beetlejuice for two years and I knew um, the company. I knew um, Global Creatures because I'd been k- k- submitting k- uh, creating songs for um, Baz Luhrmann's adaptation of his Strictly Ballroom film. He was making a musical of it in Australia. And I ended up writing quite a few songs for that over the life of it. So I already had a relationship with the company. And then they, I remember we were doing a workshop in New York at Beetlejuice and Carmen Pavlovich, the head of Global Creatures, called me and was like, do you want to um, come to London after your thing and be in a room with um, uh, Drew McConey, who was the director choreographer, choreographer and jack thorne the book writer i was like yeah so basically we sat in a room for three days um coming up with an outline and then we pitched it to roy Furman, who was this sort a of lead investor kind of producer guy and he liked the concept and so we had this insane i think we had like um like a a year to get it sort of ready for workshop and then after that like another sort of six months of development and then we were like on and because of the sheer huge kind of technical challenges of that show unlike Beetlejuice where we yes it was technical but um you know we had so many different sort of labs and developments we could kind of like move the ship and you know, as you can hear from the demo album, you know, cut whole scenes, cut whole songs, completely rewrite and act, you know, restructure things. With Kong, it was like you're very much, you know, um, in the beginning they were like, we want, we don't want to make, a, you know, a traditional musical. That was the brief. And that essentially meant, you know, we want you to write some songs, but we're not going to have characters singing to each other and it's just there'll be, you know, sometimes it'll be contemporary dance. Sometimes it'll be puppetry with like orchestral music. Sometimes people will sing. Sometimes it will just be, you know, a scene. <clears throat> and in the end, you know, that kind of, I think, if it had more time to be developed, that those elements would be um, more cohesive. And because it wasn't, you know, a traditional musical, a, a good deal of the audience were like quite confused by it. Um, and so that was a that was like a that was a giant mechanism to be inside working on that show. And then at the same time working on Beetlejuice, there was a period where we were both rehearsing both shows, one on level two of um, New 42, which is that re- rehearsal space, you know, on 42nd Street, mm-hmm. and one on, like, level five. And I would, like, kind of get the elevator between the floors and just walk into different rooms. And it was, like, yeah, it was fun and exciting. But as we got towards the pointy end, where, you know, King Kong was previewing and Beetlejuice was out of town in DC. And I was like catching the Amtrak, you know, back and forth like a crazy person. Then it got, it became kind of about stamina. And then it became about, look, you know, the the real, I never chose to do them both at the same time. There's no way any sane human being would go, let's, let's put on two shows on Broadway. That's just, <laughs> you know, I don't make the decisions about when things were scheduled. And so we were just like, positive about it. let's try and divide up the schedule but when you're not in the room for one of the shows and there's a like that people want to make changes and you're not there for it if you're it's not it's not a case of like oh when you're there people will just kind of do stuff without asking you but you're not there to advocate for your own work or to explain it or or to help find solutions. so things were fine when i was in the room on kong but because there was a lot of work to be done and a lot of um, pressure on it, and a lot, of, a lot at stake, um, when I when I wasn't there, you know, things would travel in weird directions, and it was very difficult to to get anyone's attention to tell you what was going on. So I um, I did not have a good time in the end. I think mean, this is probably the generous way of saying it. Um, and yeah. And then, and then Beetlejuice was completely different. Beetlejuice was a much, you know, calmer, <laughs> um, you know, more, you know, I think we'd kind of gone through the fire with each other and, and really trusted each other. Um, and when, you know, Kong was up and running and we were bringing Beetlejuice to the Broadway stage, you know, I was determined not to repeat the mistakes that I'd made on on Kong. And, and it all boiled down to me. Um, to be a case of always be in the room, always be in the room. Bad things happen to creatives <laughs> when they're not in the room. So I was like, I will never, I will never not be in the room. And it was insane. I was like, I would li- <laughs> I don't know if I've told Alex Timbers this, but you know you would start the day around about ten a m in the theater during previews, um rehearse during the day, have a dinner break, come back, watch the preview when the preview came down would all gather in the, the lobby um, everybody there would be a big kind of group meeting about stuff all all departments meeting and then the departments would break off and we'd have little discussions and i would i would make sure every night i was the last person to leave that theater so that and i was just like and that sounds like paranoid or something but it wasn't it was just like i want to you know i want to be available to this show completely that meant walking out of there at two am, and then you know you go home and and then you got to you know get up super early and do your rewrites and then repeat. And it was so exhausting. Um, but you know I didn't want to I didn't want to get to the opening night and feel like I could I could have done more. I was like I just gotta really just dig in. And I fucked up my ankle in the snow. <laughs> And this is a kind of a, this is like, this is not going to make me look good, this story. I don't really know. I don't, I don't think I was medically insured in New York. All right. I don't, there's no kind of, I don't know if there's a composer's union. Certainly didn't hear from anyone. <laughs> um, I had to get like, you know, I can't remember if we got Medicare or Medicaid. I was like, holy shit. Do you want to make that more confusing, guys? Um, so me and my family were like, oh, Try not not to get hit by a bus. Anyway, um, you know, I felt really guilty because I hadn't been hanging out with my kids much. I've been in the theatre so much, and we get up in the morning one morning, and it's the last day of rehearsal of Beetlejuice. We're doing a run-through, and then we're going to go to the theatre and we're going to start teching. And it's a Saturday morning. I get up early. The kids are super excited because there's snow. They're like, Dad, can we go on the sled? And I'm so tired, but I'm like, yes, I'm going to be your dad. I'm going to be, a, I'm going to be one of those dads. Like, oh, I'm too tired. So I get up and I grab the sled and we get in our warm clothes and we get out in the street and I slipped on the sidewalk and hurt my ankle so badly that I, that it, that it nearly made me throw up. Like, and I was like, I think I've, I think I've broken my ankle. So I, Hobble back upstairs, and basically my ankle's are ballooning out and it's going all sorts of terrible colors. And but I've got this final run of the show, and I'm like, what am I gonna do? So I just did a couple of aspirin, and I got Lucy to buy me some crutches from CVS. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm going, I'm going to the, going to the last rehearsal. And then I went to the rehearsal, and I'm like, well, okay, everyone's like, you're all right, and I've got like, I've got ice on my. Elephant tight ankle, and um, and I was that guy, that super slow guy in Manhattan. That everyone's like, Ugh, you know, trying to get around. <laughs> and I literally was like going snail's pace to rehearsals. Everyone was very concerned. And then I was like, okay, I'm not going to go to the. I can't go to the. I don't think I can go to the doctors. And look, if it's broken, by the time we get to opening night or whatever, it'll Still really hurt. And if it's not, it'll be better. That was my theory. Um, and so I was like literally like rapping and elevating and icing. I hung on the tech desk at, at the Winter Garden Theater with my foot up on the desk, you know, with like horrible bruising. And it was bruised all up my leg. It looked just shit out. And um I did have this weird appointment to go and see um, a dermatologist to get, because um, I've got Celtic skin, i got to get my moles checked every now and then so I don't die of melanoma. And um, <laughs> so I went to that and, and I, I hadn't really thought about it. I was exhausted that because of my weird ankle. I'd, I hadn't really been able to like shower properly. It just been like kind of a weird like leaning. Uh, it was disaster. And I walked in there and I was like just, just dirt I was like physically dirty. Like it was so gross. And then she looked at my ankle and she's like, Oh my god, like what happened? And I'm like, Oh, I fell over in the snow. And she's like, You need to like go to a doctor. And I was like, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then she, the poor woman had to like examine my whole disgusting body. And um, I never did, never once got it looked at. And I just limped through Manhattan. And by the time I got to opening night, I was all good, baby. So I took on the American <laughs> healthcare system and I won. <laughs> well,
0: there's your, your political lesson for the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, USA. Okay. USA. 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 Oh, God. We are number one at something. Um, oh. Three standard closing questions I ask everybody to close out the podcast. The first one is, what motivates you?
1: Oh. um just the, the 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 I think ultimately having an audience I having a knowing that you've got an audience I know what it's like to not have an audience that really <laughs> sucks and I think that when i um when I write I mean obviously creatively, like I said before, I really do think about how an audience is going to sort of be thinking and feeling and experiencing, but also just the just the um very grateful for the gift it is to make work that people turn up and pay money to see that's, mo- that, that's pretty motivating.
0: So then what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now, starting out down a similar path?
1: Um, you know, like part of writing is finding your writing process. And while I don't think I, I'm not, a, I'm not a big, Oh, I would like to go back and ch- I'm not a big go back and change person thing. Because I think, you know, like mistakes do lead to positive things, and um, you know, if I'd killed someone, I was in jail. I might want to, you know, think about changing that. But um, I uh, that it's always an ongoing. You never stop learning how to how to write, but also how you write. So I used to. This is a weird example. I I was like, I experimented for a long time on the size of the piece of paper that I would write lyrics on when I was writing a song. I was really? like, it, was, it used to annoy me that I would have to turn a page because if you're at a piano, you're like, oh, where was that? And so I go, oh, I need a bigger book. And then they got bigger and bigger and they got to like, I don't know, America has this like A2 size like artist mm-hmm. sketchbook. And it was just like huge and I write across the whole thing. But I couldn't take them in a bag anywhere. It was stupid. So now I'm back to just like a normal, you know, uh, moleskin thing. But, you know, like it's good to find a nice pen you like, you know, like a <laughs> thing that writes well. I love love if I ask you what your advice
0: is for younger people and you're like, get a nice pen. (laughs) Oh yeah.
1: Because it's like, it's, you get the, you get a pen out and it's like, it's a bit splotchy and it doesn't feel, doesn't feel good to write the words. These are little things that add up to huge things when you write, if you write in a book and you write words and you don't like the way it looks on the page, I'm like, yeah, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not good for your soul. So I think, you know, find a good pen, find a good book that you write in. Um, and my my process is super weird and it will probably change, but I do some stuff at the piano. But then once I've kind of got the music in my head, I don't like to beat my piano anymore. And I've taken to, um, I ride on park benches. So I just get on my skateboard. I live like on a, on a bike path here. I live mm-hmm. in Brunswick. And I've got like a favourite picnic table. It's like a wooden picnic table. It's under some trees. There's birds, like nice dogs walk past. I just sit there and I write there with the music in my head and I write more lyrics and ideas than I need. Then I come back and I put them in in the studio and then i like, and, I, and I'm like a cat, you know, I do sort of these weird laps of my neighbourhood, you know. And that's sort of what, what works for me now and i and like no one really sort of talks about that everyone's like what's your what's your process it's like well sometimes you can't look at the thing anymore you can't look you know if you look directly at the target it starts to mess with your head mm-hmm. and a lot of the time it's like do that work and then drift laterally and then when you're like you know walking the dog or you know you're pulling out a weed or you know you're just looking at a bird in a tree then things you know occur to you and I think I think that's, at least for me, that's an important part of writing. So I don't, I don't know how you'd synthesize that into advice for young people, but it's like, just, just write the way you write, but don't create a process that's a big excuse for not writing. As long as it works and you get stuff done, then it's good.
0: All right. So the final question then is, if you can only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see?
1: That's a really, really, really good question because, you know, it gets at the heart of existence, isn't it? Like that you <laughs> that you would choose the thing that you love and then you would just destroy it for yourself. Just absolutely just, just grow to resent it uh, to the point where you're just like, I hate this, and then you would die. So that's a tricky question because you go, dear, you, <laughs> ah. you know, you presume that, oh, there's going to be a show that's so amazing You can watch it all the time. And I I promise you, that show does not, it does not exist. Um, I mean, you'd probably go for like, you know, a a three-hour Janacek opera or something, something that's really inscrutable so that, you know, after year four or whatever, you'd be like humming the hits. (laughs) But, you know, I've seen... um, you know, I've seen Lay Miserables A a bunch of times, and I reckon that's a pretty that's a pretty good one. You know, like I, you know, it'd be fun to. I've seen that a lot, so I guess that that's there.
0: As a reminder, there's a link in the show notes to get the album, the Beetlejuice demos, the demos, the demos. So make sure you check that out. You can find Eddie Perfect on Instagram at edmund perfect or on Twitter at the Eddie perfect. You can find me online at theaterpodcast.com. Please show your support for the podcast at the slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. On Instagram and Twitter, I am at theater underscore podcast. I'm on Facebook at Official Theater Podcast. You can listen and subscribe and leave a rating, leave a review. Goodness, this podcast, as always, thrives on reviews. Please leave some This is edited by Matthew Hendershot. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. Eddie Perfect, thank you so much for this conversation. I had so much fun.
1: Super fun. Thank you. That's good. It's really fun to talk about this crazy stuff. And, um, yeah. yeah, it's weird times, so why not? Take
0: a deep breath, make the world a little colorful.
1: Dead mom if you were here we'd laugh till you were nauseous i'm in your hometown of course it's still the town the time forgot and everybody's staring at me like all hurry up get happy move along